March 12, 2020. A stunning announcement is about to be released by the NCAA. Never in its 80-year history has the NCAA tournament been canceled. Never has March Madness been canceled. But all of that is about to change. Less than 24 hours ago, the NBA, the entire league, halted its season. The NHL and MLS followed suit, as did all of European football. The word that will echo for months to come is unprecedented. This is supposed to be the climax of the college basketball season, but the madness has turned to chaos. A newly discovered and highly contagious strain of coronavirus is now spreading the globe and a wide range of afflictions, including devastating respiratory effects, have top health officials perplexed. The solution is to isolate. Shut down public places. Shut down public events. The decision is devastating, but necessary. The NCAA making it official. The NCAA tournament has been canceled for 2020. The easy headline, the NCAA tournament has just been canceled. That's Here's what you need to know. You will not lose your bracket pool this year. You will not win your bracket pool this year. There will be no bracket this year. There is going to be no NCAA tournament. Not postponed. Canceled. Not postponed. Canceled. And this is just the beginning. From Studio Spaz, in association with the Quinnipiac University Sports Journalism Department, this is Jump Ball, a stark examination of men's college basketball, past, present, and future. This is part four, the bottom line. The ensuing downward spiral would be swift. No live sporting events would take place for 66 days, over two months, and many leagues wouldn't return until several months after that. Sports-centric networks like ESPN scrambled to fill the void, replaying classic games and matches and highlighting esports or video game competitions. For college athletes, the impact was devastating. In addition to winter championships being canceled, the entire spring season, which had barely begun, was called off. The NCAA promptly approved an additional year of eligibility for spring athletes, but for many, the damage was done. Their athletic careers were finished. Just as disturbing was the ensuing fallout amongst colleges who determined they could no longer support all of their athletic programs. As of July, 134 sports across all three NCAA divisions have been terminated, deserting 2,000 athletes in the process. In nearly every case, schools have stated that they will honor athlete scholarships, but those who want to continue playing or incoming students yet to arrive will have to go elsewhere. In other words, 
they must transfer. NCAA transfer procedures, unsurprisingly, are antiquated, arbitrary, and inequitable. Until recently, players had to seek permission from their coach to be able to transfer. As competition increased and revenue increased, this became burdensome for athletes, with many often being restricted or outright denied. In the summer of 2015, Memphis Rising star Austin Nichols elected to transfer. Initially, then-head coach Josh Pastner, who is now in the same position at Georgia Tech, refused to grant his release. The move was berated by the media, and just two days later Memphis reversed course and agreed to a conditional release, which barred Nichols from transferring to any conference opponent or scheduled non-conference opponent. This sparked an additional uproar, and within a week all of the restrictions were lifted. In 2018, the NCAA introduced the transfer portal, which removed coaches from the decision-making process. Any player wanting to transfer would simply inform the school and have their information compiled into a universal database so that any program could seek them out. This resolved one issue, but highlighted another. Basketball and football players need permission from the NCAA to be immediately eligible. Otherwise, they must sit out for one year. This measure is extremely biased, as it does not apply to any other sport. It also does not apply to graduate students, who as a reward for completing their undergraduate degree may suit up on arrival. For this reason, graduate students have become a hot commodity, putting them at the front of the line. The NCAA has a list of allowable exceptions for immediate eligibility, but even they are not cut and dry. Last year, offensive lineman Brock Hoffman left Coastal Carolina University to be closer to home after his mother was diagnosed with acoustic neuroma, a benign brain tumor. He chose Virginia Tech, cutting his commute in half down to two hours. This should have been perfectly acceptable, but the organization ruled against Hoffman. First, it stated that for a medical hardship waiver, he needed to be within 100 miles of home and Virginia Tech missed the mark by five miles. And that wasn't the worst of it. The NCAA further embarrassed themselves by concluding without proper medical knowledge that Hoffman's mother was progressing well, thus negating the need for a waiver, even though she still suffered from facial paralysis, hearing loss, and vision impairment, some of which may be permanent. On appeal, the organization threw out one final absurdity. Hoffman had not initiated his transfer swiftly enough. Similarly, point guard Avinia Westbrook decided to leave the University of Tennessee program after head coach Holly Warlick was dismissed. She enrolled at UConn, but was denied immediate eligibility because the NCAA declared her circumstances were normal, providing no further details. Yet, in the same offseason, two Georgia Tech players who both transferred to Louisville after their coach was fired, were allowed to suit up right away. UConn head coach Gino Oriema summed it up best when speaking with the media. I would like to know why, why some people do get cleared or get waivers and others don't. I, I, I don't know what the criteria is. They say, well, you have to have these five buckets or whatever the hell they call them. I don't get it. These inane decisions boil down to one thing. Parody. As mentioned in part two, 
the NCAA draws on the parity of college sports, the false idea that no one institution holds a competitive advantage over another. I get a kick out of the NCAA in that they say that, you know, they want to make sure it's not a competitive advantage. Look, Duke, Kentucky, Kansas, those type of schools innately have uh, inherently have competitive advantages. There's no level playing field, really. I coached in the ACC. I mean, we didn't have the same resources uh, as North Carolina and Duke, so they had a, a, a competitive advantage. ESPN analyst Seth Greenberg is not the only one who gets a kick out of this. Let's take a look at a few examples. Since the four-team college football playoff was introduced in 2014, Alabama and Clemson have been selected to participate in five of the six tournaments. In total, 21 of the 24 participants have come from Power Five conferences. Dating back to 2008, the UConn women's basketball team has appeared in every Final Four. That's 12 consecutive years. Since 2011, Kentucky, Kansas, Duke, all mentioned by Seth, along with Michigan State, have participated in an annual preseason tournament called the Champions Classic. In the most recent iteration, the teams held the top four spots in the AP poll. And this trend isn't confined to the major revenue-generating sports. In the 86-year history of the wrestling championships, only 12 different schools have won a title. Out of that select group, Oklahoma State leads the way, crowned a champion 34 times. That's nearly one title every two and a half years. Now, most of those titles occurred between the 1920s and 1970s, but the program still ranks near the top every year. Currently at the top is Penn State, who has won it all eight of the last nine years. Amongst all Division I schools, Stanford, UCLA, and USC have each garnered over 100 national championships across nearly 20 sports, the next closest school, Oklahoma State, has less than half that number. The transfer portal is emblematic of this as well, in that athletes, especially in basketball and football, have become part of an open market. Players who once competed for a scholarship have the opportunity to do so again, a process undeniably similar to free agency. And the numbers don't lie. This offseason, one-third of all men's basketball transfers within Power Five conferences and the Big East have committed to another program within the same highly touted group. And that may continue to rise as 20% remain undecided. Clearly, parity doesn't exist, and any implication otherwise is just shameful. unnatural absence of sport brought on by the pandemic has also provided a unique opportunity to question its cultural importance. Just three weeks after the shutdown, Oklahoma State football coach Mike Gundy aired out his feelings on the situation in a media teleconference. In my opinion, if we have to bring our players back, test them, they're in good shape, they're all 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old, they're healthy. A lot of them can fight it off with, it, with their, their natural body, their the antibodies and and build up they have, and, um, you know, there, there's some people that are asymptomatic. If that's true, then, yeah, we, we sequester them. And people say that's crazy. No, it's not crazy. Because we need to continue to budget and run money through the state of Oklahoma. 
His remarks were both insensitive and ignorant, not only because he was willing to risk the health and safety of his players for money, of which they would never see a dime, but because the majority of his players, the majority of all football and basketball players, are black. In less than two months, another health crisis would be at the forefront of the conversation. Systemic racism. On May 25, 2020, a black Minneapolis man named George Floyd was killed while being arrested after a white officer, Derek Chauvin, kneeled on the nape of his neck for eight minutes, crushing his airway and suffocating him in the middle of a busy roadway. Two other officers also knelt on the square of his back and his legs during that time, while a fourth looked on. The entire incident was captured on video by bystanders, with Floyd desperately pleading, I can't breathe. A pervasive history of law enforcement discrimination and brutality against blacks has long plagued the United States, but starting now, it would no longer be tolerated. The trickle-down effect was vast, and sports became a target. Many view sports as an equal opportunity landscape, but while blacks are heavily represented among players, the NBA tops all leagues at 75%, coaches, executives, owners, and even fans are predominantly white. This isn't a coincidence, and it's only exacerbated in college sports where athletes aren't compensated. In 2018, at an annual meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Sports, which is an independent commission focused on reform in college athletics, Kylia Carter, the mother of former Duke player Wendell Carter Jr., addressed the panel. Carter, who was black, spoke slowly, the room falling silent around her. The problem that I see is not with the student-athlete. It's not with the coaches at the institutions of higher learning, but it's with a system like the only system that I have ever seen where the laborers are the only people that are not being compensated for the work that they do while those in charge receive mighty compensation. The only two thing, the only two systems where I've known that to be in place is slavery and the prison system. And now I see the NCAA as overseers <coughs> of a system that is identical to that. And so it's very difficult for me to be able to sit here and not say that there is a problem that is sickening, but the problem, I believe, is not being directed in the right place. And I think that it should be. And I think the cover should be pulled back and everyone be able to see the truth and be aware of what's really happening to the student athlete and their family. Carter's plea shows the exasperation of a centuries old plight, one that Floyd's death has helped to reignite. In the reemergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, Sweeping changes have been made to finally address racial insensitivity and disparity. Numerous statues that once honored racist figures or those with ties to slavery have come crumbling down. PepsiCo announced it would rebrand its Aunt Jemima breakfast food line. Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian, who was married to legendary tennis champion Serena Williams, 
announced his immediate resignation from the Reddit board and recommended that his position be filled by a black candidate. And the NFL team in Washington finally, finally announced that they will be retiring their overtly controversial mascot, even though the final straw was a potential financial landslide from losing all of their corporate sponsors and not the outcries of blatant racism. While all of this was happening, a photo of Mike Gundy wearing a t-shirt promoting the One America News, or OAN network, began circulating on social media. OAN is a far-right or extreme conservatism cable channel that often promotes racist content and conspiracy theories. The network has floated the idea that the coronavirus is a bioweapon that was manufactured in a U.S. laboratory, and has also referred to the Black Lives Matter movement as a criminal organization. During Gundy's media teleconference in April, he openly praised OAN for reporting the news without commentary or opinion. Clearly, he didn't listen very closely. The backlash against Gundy was swift and powerful, with star running back and Heisman hopeful Chuba Hubbard publicly denouncing his head coach and refusing to play for the Cowboys until changes were made. Within hours, Gundy posted an apology video, which was shortly followed by a second video featuring Gundy and Hubbard shaking hands. While the sentiment felt genuine, the sincerity remains to be seen. On a much more positive note, historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, have received increased recognition and consideration from high school basketball players. Mikey Williams, a top prospect in the class of 2023, sent out a cryptic tweet at the beginning of June saying, quote, going to an HBCU wouldn't be too bad, unquote. One month later, McCurr Maker, ranked as the 16th best player by ESPN in the upcoming class, was determined to set the example. He committed to Howard University and will join the team this fall. As swiftly as winter and spring sports were canceled in March, when the extent of the pandemic was relatively unknown, the decisions surrounding fall and winter sports have been much less streamlined. Why? Football and basketball are the two biggest revenue-generating sports. So it's no surprise then that the NCAA has been silent, shying away from making a universal decision. A year before Floyd's untimely passing, another black figure from Minneapolis made headlines around the world. WNBA star Maya Moore, who has spent her entire career with the Minnesota Lynx, shockingly announced that she was stepping away from basketball entirely. Arguably one of the greatest players of all time and still in the prime of her career, the decision was not made lightly. Moore, who had been on the court nonstop since college, felt a larger calling to another court. As an 18-year-old about to head off to college, Moore was introduced to Jonathan Irons, an inmate in her hometown of Jefferson City, Missouri, who was convicted of burglary and assault and sentenced to 50 years in prison at her age. At the time, her godfather, Reggie Williams, was reviewing the case, which was far from ironclad. Irons grew up penniless, struggled in school, and found himself on the streets. 
A single misdemeanor as a young teen elevated his burglary trial to adult court. There was no evidence tying Irons to the crime, just a single eyewitness who saw him in the area of where it occurred, and a statement he allegedly made to an investigator that Irons adamantly denied. Irons was also black. He grew up with presidential administrations that honed in on law and order, a discriminatory practice fixated on minority and impoverished communities. Kylea Carter touched on black men in prison, but what she didn't mention is that as a result of this measure, today's prison population is disproportionately black. In fact, blacks slightly outnumber whites, even though whites outnumber blacks in the general population at a ratio of 5 to 1. Irons was convicted by a jury with a ratio of 12 to 0. Moore met Irons and the two formed a tight bond, with Moore later stating that Irons was like family to her. They stayed in contact through the years, but in 2016, the untimely shooting death of another black Minnesota man, Philando Castile, resonated deeply. Castile was shot by police during a routine traffic stop. His girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, and her four-year-old daughter were in the car. Reynolds live-streamed the aftermath on Facebook, resulting in a nationwide outcry for justice. Moore felt called to act and turned her full attention to Iron's case. At the beginning of this year, she re-upped her commitment, announcing once again that she would not play basketball, including the Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo, which have since been postponed. Just weeks later, on March 9th, Moore scored a court win more impactful than any other in her career. Judge Daniel Green ruled that the case against Irons was weak and mostly circumstantial and overturned the guilty verdict. The prosecutors decided that they would not pursue another trial. The charges were dropped. Irons was free. On July 1st, after serving nearly half his sentence, Irons was released from prison, greeted first by the woman who so adamantly fought for this moment. Moore is not the first athlete to sacrifice her career for the greater good, but she may serve as the inspiration for many more to come. The NCAA and their member institutions should be helping and encouraging basketball players and all college athletes to reach higher, to look beyond sports, to see the bigger picture, just like Maya Moore. In speaking with lawyer and player advocate Tammy Gaw, I couldn't help but feel that this period in time may one day be recognized as a revolution in the annals of sport. Do you think that we could look back at this moment in either the near or distant future and say that this was a pivotal moment in terms of where sports is? I will be mortified if we do not. <laughs> because this is, it is laying bare so many different things. It is laying bare um, institutional racism. It is laying bare the uh, economic inequality of claiming that you don't have any money to pay players off whose back you're making boatloads of money, but the highest paid public employee in, I think it's still 38 out of 50 states, is either a college football or college men's basketball coach. It's actually 42 out of 50 states now. Hawaii joined the list this year after hiring Todd Graham to be its new head football coach. But I digress. You can give Dabo Swinney a $93 million deal, but you're telling me that there is no extra money 
for one of his football players. And it's important to note that right now, uh, well, as of I think last Friday, 37 Clemson players have tested positive for COVID. So you're bringing back unpaid labor as guinea pigs on a campus that campus that colleges are saying are not safe for regular students, but they're okay for the kids who can play football so that the universities can continue to make money to support an unsustainable system? I think not. Amen to that. I'm, I am very much enjoying watching these young people take the power that they've always had and use it for good. This is, I'm, I'm really liking what I'm seeing. Jump Ball is written and produced by me, Steve Zacco. Our music is composed by Hayden Olmsted. Special thanks to Molly Entity for editing and providing invaluable feedback. For more on this episode, please check out our website at jumpballpodcast.org. Jump Ball is a production of Studio Spaz.